Welcome back to the London Futurist podcast. This episode, like the previous one, consists of a number of short interviews recorded at the Longevity Summit Dublin between 17th and 20th August, featuring a variety of different speakers from the summit. In this episode, we'll hear first from Matt Caberline, the CEO of a company called Optispan, following a 20-year period at the University of Washington studying the biological mechanisms of ageing and potential interventions to improve health span. Among other topics, Matt talks to us about the Dog Ageing Project, the Million Molecules Project, and whether longevity science is at the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning. Our second speaker is Yao Pedro de Magalhães, who is the Chair of Molecular Biogerontology at the University of Birmingham, where he leads the Genomics of Aging and Rejuvenation Lab. Yao Pedro talks to us about the motivation to study and manipulate the processes of aging and his work to improve the low-temperature cryopreservation of human organs. You may be surprised at how many deaths are caused by the present lack of such cryopreservation methods. Third is Steve Horvath, who has just retired from his position as a professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, and is now a principal investigator at Altos Labs in Cambridge. Steve is known for developing biomarkers of ageing, known as epigenetic clocks. He describes three generations of these clocks, implications of mammalian species with surprisingly long lifespans, and possible breakthroughs involving treatments such as senolytics, partial epigenetic reprogramming, and altering metabolic pathways. The episode rounds off with an interview with Tom Lowry, Managing Director for Second Century Tech, who refers to himself as a recovering Microsoft executive. We discuss his recent best-selling book, Hacking Healthcare, what's actually happening with the application of artificial intelligence to healthcare, the pace of change regarding generative AI, and whether radiologists ought to fear losing their jobs anytime soon to deep learning systems. My name is Matt Caberline, and I'm currently the CEO of a company called Optispan. Just recently left my academic position at the University of Washington. I've been there for about 17 years, and I've been in the field really since graduate school. And I got my start working with a professor named Lenny Garenti, who was one of the early pioneers in the field studying the genetics of aging. And so that's really been a theme of my career throughout, has been trying to understand which aspects of aging are shared across many different organisms. And so I've studied the mTOR pathway quite a bit. I started a project called the Dog Aging Project, along with some of my colleagues, Daniel Promisel and Kate Creevy, which is a large longitudinal study of aging in companion dogs. Actually, about almost 50,000 dogs in the United States in that study right now. And then ran a research lab at the University of Washington for almost 17 years. 
And that dog aging project is very interesting. As you were saying in the talk, you've effectively recruited 50,000 Americans to help research aging. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the things that really appealed to me about the idea when we first started talking about it was I, I immediately recognized being a dog person. I've always had dogs. And I have a 13-year-old German Shepherd now who I love dearly. I recognized how important our companion animals are to us, mm. to many people, and that one of the big potential powerful features of this project is the ability to engage people in science who wouldn't otherwise engage in science, and particularly in what we call geroscience, which is the science of aging. Mm. So I think that's been one of the things that we've been able to contribute is a broader recognition, first of all, that there is a biology of aging. And I think dogs are actually a really neat example to illustrate this concept because everybody's familiar with the idea that one human year is about seven dog years. Mm -hmm. All that really means is dogs age biologically about seven times faster than people do. But I think it's easier for people to get that concept because they're used to that idea and they've seen it in their own companion animals. Yeah, and recruiting members of the public to the cause of longevity is a great thing. And your big project now is the Million Molecules Project. Could you talk us through that? That's a project that started in my academic lab at the University of Washington, and it really sprang from an observation that I had made looking at the field as a whole that, at least in my opinion, it feels like the discovery of new ways to manipulate the biology of aging that have a large effect has slowed down quite dramatically in the last 20 years. So if you look at what we call interventions, and that could be things like caloric restriction or drugs like rapamycin, and their impact on lifespan or health span metrics, and just the absolute magnitude of the impact, the biggest effects people have seen are things that were discovered more than 20 years ago. And in the last 20 years, nobody has done better than rapamycin. And I think we should ask ourselves, with all the progress we're making in understanding the biology of aging, why aren't we finding new ways to manipulate it in effective ways? And I think part of the reason is because people have mostly stopped looking. So when I first came into the field, there were lots of these large-scale genetic studies looking for new genes that impacted the biology of aging. That's mostly stopped. And so the Million Molecule Project is really a way to try to encourage people to think about going back and doing more discovery science. Mm -hmm. And the goal is to screen a million interventions, could be molecules, doesn't have to be, and quantify what is their effect on lifespan and health span. And in this case, we're using a short-lived organism called Sanorhabditis elegans or nematode worms, commonly used in the field. But the idea is to find what else is out there. And so we've created some technology that was done in my academic lab called the Wormbot, which couples robotics with artificial intelligence that allows us to do this at a scale where it's feasible to test a million molecules in a few years. And so now I've spun that out at a company called Aura Biomedical. I don't personally work at Aura Biomedical or I'm a co-founder. And they are building up this technology to get to the point to do this million molecule screen. Or is actively fundraising. And I will say my academic side, even though I've left my academic position, is still very much like I would love to do this in a way where the data that comes out of this can be open access. Whether the funding comes in through private investors or through public means, even though it's at a company, I would love to be able to make the data available to the entire field. And so I'm hoping that we can make that happen. People may ask, why would you do this at a company instead of in academia? I will just say I became very frustrated with the slow pace in academia. And we talked about the dog aging project briefly. It took six years to get the first grant to actually do that. 
And to me, that was very frustrating because to me, it was so obvious this was an idea that needed to happen. Mm -hmm. I spent about a year trying to get funding to do this sort of million molecule challenge at a smaller scale even. And that also was very frustrating. And I was like, okay, you know what? We're going to try something different. So that's the reason why we decided to do this as a spin out in the for-profit sector rather than academia. And I was surprised by how inexpensive it is. Yeah. You're talking about only $5 million to test a million new molecules. That's all million interventions. That's, that's not a lot of money. Well, I think at least relative to some of the other large projects that get funded in science, generally speaking, mm -hmm. and in, in the longevity field as well, it's a fairly low investment for the potential payoff. And yeah. again, these are the kinds of things that I'm most excited about are what are what I would call pragmatic moonshots that we can do that are relatively low risk, and in this case, relatively low cost, that could actually move the needle. And so that's one of the things that I find very appealing about this. Part of the reason for the low cost is there are few humans required to actually <laughs> look at these worms and figure out when they have stopped moving. No, that's absolutely right. You know, if you think about what would go into a project like this, if you were doing it in mice, first of all, it would take a lot longer. And the costs of working with mice are much higher than they are in working with C. elegans. And you would require people to do the work with the mice and work in the mouse facilities. So because we've been able to automate this, use robotics, the human labor is much less expensive. And the model system that we're working in is also relatively inexpensive to work with. Did I correctly see on your slides that you already found some compounds that were quite encouraging in terms of extending the lifespan? That's right. So we've done a couple of things already. I sort of view them as pilot screens, although they are pilot screens that are on the scale of what everybody else in the field has ever done. So this, I think, illustrates the power of the technology, which is several orders of magnitude in terms of what we're able to discover. One of the things we did was to take a library of FDA-approved drugs, and we combined them one by one with metformin, which is one of the commonly studied drugs in the field. And this was really to try to understand how often do we see interactions, because nobody has really looked at combinations of drugs at any scale. There are a couple studies with three, four combinations, but nobody's done it at any scale. So it's really unknown how often do you get additivity, how often do they cancel each other out. And that's actually pretty relevant when you think about people, because there are lots of people who are taking many, many drugs, right? So we know <clears throat> drug interactions are real, but nobody's ever looked in the context of longevity at, at any scale. In any case, that was the rationale for this study. And what we found was that you do indeed see all sorts of combinatorial interactions, including in some rare cases, what I would call true synergy where each drug alone may have a small effect, but when you combine them, you get much larger effects. That's very encouraging and exciting. And again, we've only done a couple thousand interactions. So, you know, it's a thousand drugs plus a thousand where it's been combined with metformin. And we're seeing these large interactive effects. So if we're able to scale up into a million, there's really no doubt in my mind we're going to find many, many things that are significantly better than the current best-in-class longevity interventions that we have today. So is this the beginning of the end or is it still <laughs> the end of the beginning? I tend to like to think that there's a lot to do still. So I would frame it as the end of the beginning. And I think that the field has gotten to a point, has matured to a point where we have an opportunity now to have an impact on healthy longevity outside of the laboratory, whether that's in companion animals or whether that's in people. I think we have that opportunity today. And that's kind of what I would frame as the beginning. We sort of understand there is a biology of aging. We know something about it. We know some of the mechanisms, and we can start to do something about it. But there's a lot that remains to be discovered. And so I would say we've gotten to that first stage, and now 
Now we need to embark on some new bold ideas to really accelerate discovery and get us to the next level. Are you able to say what's likely to be the division between taking new molecules or new interventions on the one hand and on the other hand combining molecules or interventions? Current existing molecules and interventions, Mm. you mean? So that's a good question. I think we don't know at this point. So we have really only a handful, I would say, of interventions that people in the field are confident about. It's a pretty small number. And even there, we're confident that they extend lifespan and to some extent health span in mice. Do they do the same thing in people is, is also an open question. Yeah. So you can ask the question, if we start to combine those, can we do a lot better than single interventions alone? We don't know the answer to that. The limited data that exists in mice, I think is pretty suggestive that you can do a little bit better, but not a lot better. And again, there have been some combinations of rapamycin with metformin or rapamycin with another drug called acarbose, which extends lifespan in mice. And in both cases, it looks like you get a little bit of a better effect, but not as good as caloric restriction. So it's not like you've changed the game. Mm -hmm. And my intuition is that the reason for that is that most of what people have studied so far are really all targeting the same sort of network of interactions, right? Because they've kind of came out of this view of what we thought we knew about the biology of aging, the key players. And so that's what people have studied. And so I don't know how much bigger we can get the effects to be by targeting essentially the same network of interactions. I think we might need to go outside that network. Yeah. So that's my intuition. Well, Matt, thank you very much indeed for joining the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Jokil Magalhães. I'm a chair of molecular biogerontology at the University of Birmingham, where I lead the genomics of aging and rejuvenation lab. I'm interested in aging, I'm interested in understanding aging, I'm interested in understanding why we age and how we can manipulate the process of aging. My motivation is to cheat death, really. That's the ultimate goal, to be able to overcome our natural biological limitations and radically extend our lives. My talk here today focused not on aging but on cryopreservation, preservation of biological materials at ultra-low temperatures. My talk focuses on trying to convince the audience that cryopreservation is a longevity technology. So if we can develop cryopreservation methods and technologies that allow us to preserve human organs, this would save thousands of lives every year, which at the moment there's a huge shortage of organs for transplants. And so if we could overcome that by building organ banks where we cryopreserve organs, then we can then match to donors and we have more time to reach the right recipients, we can save a lot of lives. Cryopreservation would have a lot of other applications, including reproductive medicine, including regenerative medicine, including for biomedical research, and ultimately even for things like space travel and human biostasis. There was a question that suggested there's been no significant progress in cryopreservation for 40 or 50 years. What's your view of that? Progress has been slow, and it has been frustratingly slow. It's important to keep in mind that the field of cryobiology is relatively small. There's not a lot of people working in it, and there's not a lot of funding. So research has been progressing slow. I wouldn't say there has been no progress. There has been some progress. We saw an article on the cover of Science magazine on a method for nanoparticle rewarming of tissues that was tested on kidneys of animals. So there has been some developments, there has been some progress, but I agree, our ability to cryopreserve large organs still remains very, very limited, as it has been for decades. 
And the issue, as I understand it, is that in order to prevent the formation of ice, you need some antifreeze of some sort, but antifreeze by default is going to be toxic, and you're looking for chemicals that will solve both purposes. What's your method to find such chemicals? Yes, that's absolutely right. So we have to control ice formation when we freeze or cryopreserve a biological sample. The cryoprotectants that we use, the antifreeze substances that we use, and they're used in research and in the clinic already, for example, to freeze human embryos, which is already possible. So the cryoprotectants have some toxicity. They're not very toxic, actually. They have a small amount of toxicity. The problem is that when you're trying to cryopreserve a large organ, it takes a long time or a longer time for the temperature to drop. And so there's a much greater exposure to the cryoprotectant. And so even though the cryoprotectants are not particularly toxic, they're not very toxic, if the exposure is very long, then they start to become toxic. And if you have to use high concentrations of cryoprotectants, so that's the problem we still need to overcome. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to do molecular profiling of cryoprotectants or more specifically cells, human cells exposed to cryoprotectants to try to understand the underlying mechanisms of toxicity and also use data-driven approaches like machine learning and AI to then identify additional cryoprotectants, toxicity neutralizers, and other chemicals that can improve the cryopreservation protocols and make them safer and less toxic, and ultimately make them more applicable to larger organs. And you've recently created a new organization in Oxford on that subject? Yeah, so we created a company very recently, Oxford Cryotechnology. This is myself, together with two other colleagues, Roman Bauer at the University of Sussex, and Emil Kenziora. Yes, you said it better than I do. From uh, Tomorrow Biostasis in Germany. So we created a company as a vehicle really to perform this research. At this stage, we're still at a stage where we have done some data generation, and we're trying to do some validation in cells, some proof of principle, and then what we want is to get funding in order to do also experiments in organs, including larger human organs. So that's the goal, but we still need investment and funds to do that. And as I understand it, one of the ways of trying to deal with the toxicity of the antifreeze, apologies for using that term, is to do the freezing process quicker, and that's called vitrification. Is that right? So there's different ways of doing it. If it's a large organ, you can't really do it that quickly. It just takes time for the organ to cool down. Yes, you want to do it as quickly as possible. The major difference between vitrification and other freezing methods is that in vitrification you use high concentrations of cryoprotectants, high concentrations of antifreeze, and that essentially replaces water. I mean, you still have a little bit of water, but it replaces most of the water, and that, of course, prevents ice formation, because instead of having water, you have an antifreeze. And then when you lower the temperature, it vitrifies. It turns into this glass-like state. It's a solid state that becomes vitrified, and that's the goal. So yeah, so it's a very high concentration of cryoprotectants. That's really the defining feature of vitrification. Right, and that must be very delicate because although organs are flexible, you can't presumably replace water with a volume of cryoprotectants, which is very different from the volume of water that was there originally. So you've got to have a roughly equivalent amount of material. Yes, well, I have to admit, we've never vitrified a whole large organ in my lab, so I don't know from personal experience. We have done some vitrification of cells, for instance. I think for organs, it varies a lot also between organs, and it also varies 
if you're doing in animal organs, for example, obviously they're going to be much smaller. If you're doing in human organs, they're going to be much bigger, which is an additional constraint or, or challenge. And maybe just say something about the humanitarian impact of this. I understand large numbers of people die for lack of access to transplantable organs because of complications with preserving the organs long enough. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. There is, so I think most people are aware, there are very long waiting lists for organ transplants. So we have a shortage of organs for transplants. And every year, thousands of patients die because they do not have the transplant they needed. or They die of organ failure that could be prevented if they had a transplantable organ. But the problem is that although there are organs for transplants available when patients die of accidents, for instance, the problem is that there's a very small, very narrow window of time that you have to transport to get that organ for a patient. And that's a very narrow window. It could be hours, it could be a few days at maximum. So it's a very narrow window. And so a lot of the organs that are available for transplantation, in fact, three quarters of hearts available for transplantations in the US, for instance, they're wasted. If we could cryopreserve organs safely, we could have organ biobanks, essentially frozen organs that we could then match to different patients which would be much more efficient and would save thousands of lives. I was very struck by the comparison you made with the number of people who die of cancer. I think you said that there are more people dying for lack of a replacement organ than there are dying from cancer. Yeah, so estimates from some colleagues in the US for data from the US, but I would assume it would be similar for the UK, is that over 700,000 patients every year die in the US from organ failure. I think that's broadly defined. I I actually imagine it includes cancer patients. But uh, by comparison, about 600,000, a bit over 600,000 patients die of cancer in the U.S. every year. So yes, it's a staggering number of patients that die every year that could be prevented if we had organs available for transplantation. So why aren't medical research funds or governments in general behind this research that you're doing? That's a good question. I think there has been some additional funding in the US, for example, from the work of folks like the Organ Preservation Alliance. In the UK, not so much. I think there is actually surprisingly very little funding for cryobiology in general. I think that's partly because I don't think people are aware of the potential for cryobiology and cryopreservation in medicine, in longevity, and to save lives. I think that's one of the reasons why it's lagged behind other topics like Alzheimer's or cancer, because those diseases, specific diseases, you, I, I think people kind of say, okay, so we just need to develop a drug that will treat the diseases. Well, cryobiology probably strikes people that that's going to be more complicated. I don't necessarily think it's going to be more complicated, but it's a different set of problems that have to be solved. It's more of an engineering problem, cryobiology, I would say, in cryopreservation. So there is definitely a lot of potential to it. It seems to be easier to create a community around an illness. I suspect the amount of money that goes into Alzheimer's is a function of the fact that there are Alzheimer's sufferers and their relatives, their friends and family, who campaign incredibly enthusiastically for it. And I doubt it's as easy to make a community around people who need a transplant. Absolutely. And there's different types of organs that people need. So hearts and lungs, probably the two that are most in high demand, but also livers, kidneys... If you have patients, and for example, National Institute on Aging in the U.S. started, they needed some patients, and that's Alzheimer's, 
that was Alzheimer's patients. <laughs> so that's why most of the budget from the National Institute for Aging yeah. go yeah. to Alzheimer's disease yeah. because that's the patients that they're trying to treat. So, so absolutely. Yeah. Well, Pedro, hopefully this conversation in a small way will help to make more people aware of what's uh, possible and what's needed. So thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us. My pleasure. Thanks, Pedro. My name is Steve Rovers. I just retired from my position as a professor at the University of California, Los Angeles. I'm now a principal investigator at Altos Labs in Cambridge. I'm known for developing biomarkers of aging known as epigenetic clocks. We developed the first epigenetic clock for measuring age in saliva samples. And then later I've worked on so-called pan-tissue clocks, clocks that work in all cells that contain DNA. Then we developed so-called second-generation epigenetic clocks. These are clocks that predict mortality risk in humans based on blood. Today I presented third-generation epigenetic clocks. These are clocks that apply to all mammalian species. Yeah, that's who I am. Brilliant. Three generations of clocks. Yeah. I was intrigued, because I didn't know before, that humans are just about the longest living mammal. Do you think there's a particular reason for that? Yeah. Just to echo what you said, we are really a remarkably long-lived species, because when you look at the longest-lived primate the maximum age would be 60. I want to say a gorilla lived up to 60. So we really stand out among primates. Our maximum lifespan is 122 years. So why is that? There is an easy answer and a difficult answer. The easy answer is because we don't have many predators. In essence, species that can evade predators, they evolve a long lifespan. That's the ecological answer. But it's unsatisfactory because what people really want to know is, well, what are the molecular secrets? Why do we live these long lives? Why does a bowhead whale live up to 211 years? Again, bowhead whale has few predators. Therefore, it could evolve a very long lifespan. But yeah, what are the molecular secrets behind that? That's much more difficult. Do you think in the future we will learn from some of these other long-lived species? perhaps some of the cancer prevention mechanisms, perhaps some of the repair mechanisms, and therefore use these for treatments to extend human lifespan? Yeah, that's actually a very good question. So there are several superb biologists who have exactly that idea. You know, They study mammalian lifespan to learn the secrets, as very much what you mentioned, cancer resistance, there's something called the blind mole rat. It's very resistant to cancer and also naked mole rat. But the reason why I don't enthusiastically say yes is that I looked at the epigenetic components of maximum lifespan. And the first thing we found is that, yes, methylation or epigenetics very much predicts maximum lifespan in different species. So that's good news. However, when we looked at do these genomic locations overlap with locations that relate to our individual mortality risk as humans, for example, or that are affected by interventions that extend lifespan in mice, is there an overlap? And there the overlap was very, very weak. So the danger is that 
whatever we learn from maximum lifespan in different species may be so radically different from anything that we know about reducing our own mortality risk that it's different biology. So that's why I'm cautious about the idea. I'm glad people pursue it. I certainly pursue that idea as well in the lab, but I just want to say don't assume that when you study a long-lived bat that lives 40 years, that this will directly translate to the human interventions that could be difficult. So is a more credible option then to try to reverse our own epigenetic aging so that our measurements of epigenetic aging is younger because of some kind of chemical or genetic reprogramming? Yeah, I do think that's the easier avenue at this point. So we, of course, develop many epigenetic clocks, including those that relate to mortality risk in humans. And these clocks are already being used in clinical trials. And I think it's a good idea. But then, conversely, we have also these predictors of maximum lifespan in species. And I would not use those in clinical trials for the reasons I mentioned. One of the very nice things about your talk just now, Steve, was the jokes that you regaled us with. And there's one particular one about the only thing you can really do reliably to improve your chances of living longer. What was that? Yeah, well, let me be very precise. So the question was, what can you do to extend the maximum lifespan of humans? And the best that I could find after studying really a dozen different interventions is to become female. It's kind of a ridiculous finding, but there it is. I mean, of course, it's well known that women live about five or six years longer than men. And that's really in all populations, um, all racial groups, ethnic groups, and so on. Very reliable. And we found the same based on epigenetics. So yes, human females have this advantage. So yeah, that was then the joke. Turn human males into human females, you will extend the lifespan. And do we know why? We don't quite know. It has to do with processes early in development, that I can tell you, because we can already see a difference in a newborn, in a baby, we can uh, detect that difference. So it's not just various exposures to certain hormones, I don't think so. Steve, if we were to interview you again in three years' time, what do you think you'd be talking about then? I really hope to present exciting interventions that keep us healthy, promote this elusive concept of health span. I just joined Altos Labs. Altos Labs wants to identify interventions to promote health span, promote resilience to various stressors. But what I really like is that there are so many companies that pursue that in one way or another. You know? And if only one of the companies succeeds, it would be phenomenal. So without giving any commercial secrets away, what do you think might be the interventions that will turn out to be genuinely useful as opposed to those that just make us feel good? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I look at it a bit like an investor, you know, where you want to diversify the approaches. Many people have heard of senolytics. I was quite enthusiastic about this idea. Unfortunately, there have been some setbacks. So I personally don't pursue senolytics, but I just mentioned it. I thought it was a wonderful idea. So remove senescent cells. There are many types of senolytics, aren't there? 
xenotherapeutics and I forget what they're all called, but just because one approach hasn't had the experimental results that people were hoping for doesn't mean the field is dead. I completely agree. So I'm glad that people continue to pursue it. Then Altos and several other companies pursue this reprogramming idea using the so-called Yamanaka factors and interrupt the administration. Again, I think it's a wonderful idea. But the question will be, who implements it well? I always say ideas are cheap. Implementation is everything. It's probably the same comment about senolytics. But anyways, then there's a lot of people who work on very metabolic interventions, so-called calorie restriction mimetics or exercise mimetics. That also looks quite encouraging to me. I'm sitting here with a Portuguese nutter cream custard in front of me, and I'm delighted to hear you say earlier on that you don't think calorific restriction is going to be very helpful in, in extending human longevity. Yeah, just to flesh it out, in mice, caloric restriction does extend lifespan, but actually only in one-third of all mouse strains. It's not mm. every mouse strain, mm. you know, so even there it's not ubiquitous. But then... It's easy to assume because something works in a mouse, it will also work in a primate and in humans. My reading of the data and the literature is that in primates, the results are much weaker, you know, more debatable. We do not need to debate that you need to avoid risk of diabetes or no. avoid obesity, avoid what they call metabolic syndrome. But should you starve yourself to death so that your body mass index is, I don't know, 19 or 18? I would say I don't see any evidence at this point that this has a benefit. Fantastic news. Yeah. Steve, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Yeah, thank you. That was fun. That was a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Stay young. I'm Tom Laurie. I'm Managing Director for Second Century Tech, author of my latest book, Hacking Healthcare. I like to refer to myself as a recovering Microsoft executive, 15 years at Microsoft. My last position was National Director for Artificial Intelligence for Health and Life Sciences. Also did a tour of duty as Director of Worldwide Health, which meant I was working on data and AI projects, mainly outside the U.S. for six years, but I spent a number of years working in the United States. So I've had the privilege of working with very talented leaders around the world who are trying to figure out how to apply AI to make healthcare better. Tom, tell us a bit about the book, Hacking Healthcare. Hacking Healthcare came out just about a year ago, and shortly thereafter, Amazon named it a nonfiction bestseller, and so the book's done quite well. Essentially, uh, Hacking Healthcare was my attempt to basically summarize, one, what we learned from fighting a global pandemic, and then two, the role of artificial intelligence in not only fighting the pandemic, but the things we learned and how to apply artificial intelligence to work on improving health and medicine across the spectrum of all things from chronic disease to population health. So it kind of chronicles, again, what we learned. It's a bit of a primer for artificial intelligence for non-technical people and how to apply it to drive value at scale in health and medicine. And we all know and at least believe that AI is going to be tremendously beneficial in healthcare. How much is it really being used already? It's being used in drug discovery, but in diagnosing and recommending treatments to individuals. How much is AI really being used already? Well, in reality, there's far more talk. Everyone loves to talk about artificial intelligence, 
But truly, the application goes back at least a decade where it is being used. Obviously, in the last year, everyone's been focused on this thing called generative AI, which is very new. But if you look at predictive analytics, which is driven by things like algorithms, it goes back at least a decade. It is in common use in most places in the world today. And that's everything from algorithms that predict things like the propensity of the patient who's already in the hospital to have a preventable readmission. Or it's looking at certain types of vision sorts of AI to be able to do pattern recognition to help radiologists do a better job of reading x-ray. So it's commonplace. It is becoming more pervasive every year. And again, the pandemic really helped accelerate what was already starting. So we're seeing a lot. And now today, the big push is looking at how we sort through this thing called generative AI and how we apply that to uh, do even more good. Yeah. I mean, ever since the Big Bang in AI in 2012, when Hinton and his colleagues got deep learning to work, we've been hearing that radiologists would be greatly assisted or possibly even be replaced by deep learning. And those headlines still keep popping up every day that, you know, there's another test that proves that AI is better than human doctors at recognizing the implications of a scan. Are we there yet? In some ways we are, but it's the way you frame that is a great opportunity to dispel some myths. To your point, in prominent clinical journals, there have been articles that are suggesting, well, maybe we should train fewer radiologists because of AI. And whenever I see that, even from very learned colleagues, my thinking is, one, they don't really understand what AI is good at. And two, they probably don't understand what a radiologist actually does. To me, that gets down to looking at what's the value proposition? How does AI add value in health and medicine? And the idea is, it's very simple. AI drives value in one of two ways. It either automates the way work is done or augments. So in the first case, automating means those highly repetitive activities that are done by a human today will be done by a machine. But when you think about medicine, the majority of people in a hospital, in a practice, are knowledge workers. So the idea there is how do we take what AI is really good at, like pattern recognition, spotting trends in massive amounts of data that humans couldn't possibly see. So how do we take what it's good at and bring it in behind those humans, those clinicians, because we can do a lot of great things in AI, but AI doesn't possess the ability to do things like reasoning, express empathy, have common sense. And when you think about the practice of medicine, it involves all these human-like qualities that AI cannot replicate at this time. Mm -hmm. So the idea is how do we take everything it's good at, bring it in behind the clinician to make them better. In the case of radiology, the ability to help improve reads, the ability to help reduce the error rate, whether it's in a population of radiologists or down to the individual radiologists. The ability to have ambient intelligence doing things like reducing the amount of time it takes to do documentation as a physician. So when you bring that together and you know how to pair the best of AI with the best of humans, that's really how you drive value scale. You get that, you're going to do well. You don't understand that, you're going to keep talking about whether radiologists can be replaced by AI. What I heard expressed is that the fact that an AI can pass the test that we give to humans to find out whether they can do a job doesn't mean that they can actually do all of the job because we test humans for particular aspects. You're spot on. It's like 
you know, if the only requirement to be a good clinician, doctor, nurse, is to pass an exam, that is almost scary to me. Because when, when you look at the true practice of medicine, it starts by the ability to have memorization and the ability to spot certain things. But there's so much involved on judgment and the unique characteristics of each patient. And that is where, again, the human factor comes in. It is going to be there for a long time. As AI gets more sophisticated in what it can do, there may be more things that cross over that humans are doing that it will start aiding in, but it's still going to be a process in my book where the human is always going to be in the loop. And I, quite frankly, as good as AI is a lot of things, I personally would never want to be in a place where AI is really replacing that human that knows me, that knows all those characteristics, all those things that are uniquely human that physicians and nurses and others possess. If we had this interview in three years' time at another conference, what do you think will be different then? Well, I think, again, when you look at generative AI screaming onto the scene, if I had, at this conference or any conference a year ago, stood on stage and said, let's talk about GBT, how many people would even know what that was? Today, you know about it. Your kids not only know about it, they're using it to change the way they do their schoolwork. And so it's come streaming on the scene. It's got tremendous upside. And it's got a lot of things we still don't understand. Mm. And that's where, instead of leaning out and having a lot of people talking about, well, we need to not do anything with it. It's like, well, no, let's approach it cautiously. Let's start looking at how we can use it Again, to bring it in behind the humans to make them better at something they care about. And then we need to make sure the policymakers are looking at it and hopefully and eventually they will put the right proper guardrails on it. But it's so new. Back to what I was saying earlier, predictive analytics has been around and used in healthcare for at least 10 years. And at best, generative AI, things like GPT, at best, they've been around for 10 months. Yes. So we're all early in the journey. But if we take that journey together and looking at how to explore what it's good at, how we put the right parameters in place so we're protecting everything from quality to all of those other things that we want to be careful of when it comes to the responsible use of AI, it's only going to produce better good and we're going to have a lot more things to talk about in three years than we do today. But we're not quite sure which aspects will be changed because we're still at an early stage of understanding the capabilities and limitations of GBT. Yes, again, everyone's early in the journey. You know, I've spent more than a decade working with health leaders, medical leaders around the world on actually applying AI, and I'm still new to the journey. So anytime I see someone who is claiming to have AI figured out in health and medicine, I'm usually a little cautious because those who know it, those who work in it know it's complex, it's ever-changing, but we are getting smarter in being able to harness its power and apply it consistently with the proper guardrails to make sure we're using it responsibly. Fantastic. Thanks for your time. Thank you, John. That concludes the London Futurist podcast roundup from the Longevity Summit Dublin. In our next episode, Callum and I will be looking forward to the Global AI Safety Summit that will be taking place at the UK's Bletchley Park on 1st and 2nd November. Callum and I are still waiting to receive our invites to that summit. Perhaps the invites have been misdirected by a faulty AI spam filter. 
even more important than the discussions at the summit will be the wider set of conversations before the summit, involving a larger group of futurists that will help frame the agenda, highlighting in advance possible failure modes and also potentially very useful scenarios. Look out for our suggestions.